Why, 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 why? Have you ever been in the circumstances where a child has come to you and has asked for an explanation for something, and no matter how well you answer that question, there's always another why. Why, 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 why? It can be really frustrating. It can it kind of form this impossible loop that, that seems like it will never end. And yet asking and understanding why so often is so, so important. It helps us in our lives when we want to be changed, when we want to, when we want to do something, not just to do it because we've been told, but to understand truly the benefits and the effects of something. And in today's passage, we get a glimpse. We get a glimpse of the truth that Jesus wants us to understand why. Why he came, why he lived, why he died, why he rose again. That Jesus doesn't just want us to believe in the historical facts of his life, his death and his resurrection, but wants to lead us into a greater appreciation of who he is and why he has done and is doing what he is doing. And that is in this passage, Luke chapter 24, verse 13 um, down to verse 35, the story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Two of Jesus's followers, it's Sunday now, Sabbath has finished, the first day of the week, an opportunity for them to, to do what it is that they want to do. We considered last week how the women took that first opportunity to go and anoint Jesus's body, to prepare him properly for burial. These two disciples, for whatever reason, seem to be fleeing Jerusalem. If you ask me, it's, it's maybe because they're afraid, because being a follower of Jesus in Jerusalem at this point in time is really dangerous. And so they're making the journey from Jerusalem to a place called Emmaus. To give them their credit, as they go, Jesus is the central topic of their discussion. They're um, maybe chewing over, pulling apart some of their experiences this week in Jerusalem with Jesus. They're honing in on those final 24 hours of Jesus's life and most likely they are discussing this report that the women have brought back that the tomb is empty and that angels have told them that Jesus is alive and well. And as they're making their journey, as they're walking their way from Jerusalem to Emmaus, a stranger, or so it appears to them, draws alongside them. This is the risen Jesus. And whether um, by miraculous means or mechanical means, with a, with a cloak and a scarf over his face, Jesus hides himself. They're unable to recognise him. And that's because Jesus doesn't want them just to understand the what has happened. Here I am guys, you can believe the women. Jesus wants them to understand the why. And he asks them the plain question, what is it that you're discussing as each of you walk along? And they can't really understand the question because to their minds there should only be one topic of conversation. Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have been happening in these days? The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus wants them, if you like, to give their version of events. And so this is what they say. 
They say that Jesus was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. That the chief priests and the rulers had handed him over to be sentenced to death. That they had crucified him. But then they confide in this stranger. They say, do you know what? We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Can you see that what they share with Jesus is this grand scheme of things that they have in mind. This significance and importance that they'd placed on Jesus, this Messiah as they knew him, to be the one who was going to put Israel back up on her pedestal. And really all they have to report now is that, well, our dreams have been dashed. Our grand scheme seems to have utterly collapsed in the death of Jesus. Although they're willing to concede that things have taken a turn. What's more, it's the third day since all of this took place and some women have come and amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. Instead, they came and told us that they'd seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of our companions went to the tomb. They found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see Jesus. You see, Jesus isn't satisfied with this grand scheme of things that they have because it doesn't include all that he's truly about. They need to know know more of the why. They need to have a grander scheme, a grander vision of who Jesus is and what he was accomplishing. Jesus' response sounds a bit harsh to our ears, doesn't it? How foolish you are, how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. But make no mistake, Jesus' desire is that they would truly see. He's not satisfied with them recognising the fact that he truly has risen from the dead. He genuinely wants them to see and to believe the whole truth about himself. Their grand scheme of one who was coming to restore Israel wasn't nearly the whole story, not nearly grand enough for what Jesus was about. So it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things that were written in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus said, wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? What was it that Jesus thought that they were missing out on that they really needed to know? What was it that to Jesus' mind was so plain and so obvious and so there in the scriptures that he could call them foolish and slow to believe? What was it that their grand scheme of things didn't encapsulate? To us, probably in our context, The glaringly obvious thing that they had missed was the suffering of Jesus. The death of the Messiah before being raised to life. And you can see that in their response. They had this hope about one who was going to restore and redeem Israel. But he's been crucified. He's being killed. Instead of kicking the Romans out, he's been taken down a peg or two and then some. You see, they had these um, 
characters in their Jewish minds of individuals who would come and would do and achieve different things, they had no idea that these various threads in the scriptures could be pulled together and be speaking about one person, a suffering person who would come and who would be sacrificed in order that a way forward would be made. See, to our minds, that is, that is so glaringly obvious that they'd miss that. But I wonder if we appreciate the fuller sense of what Jesus described to them in that blessed Bible study. Jesus said, how foolish and slow you are to believe all that is spoken about, that the Messiah must suffer and then enter into his glory. I fear that like our two friends on the road to Emmaus, that our grand scheme of things isn't really grand enough. We could go back, and I'm sure you'll have heard this in sermons from Luke 24, the strangers on the road to Emmaus um, before, and we could look at the various types, the various pictures, the very symbols and prophecies about Jesus, the one who would come and suffer. I love this quote from J.C. Ryle. I think it's a lengthy quote, but it, it covers so much of that. Christ was the substance of every Old Testament sacrifice ordained in the law of Moses. Christ was the true deliverer and king of whom all the judges and deliverers in Jewish history were types. Christ was the coming prophet greater than Moses, whose glorious advent filled the pages of the prophets. Christ was the true seed of the woman who would bruise the serpent's head, the true seed in whom all the nations were to be blessed, the true Shiloh, to whom the people were to be gathered, the true scapegoat, the true bronze serpent, the true lamb to which every daily offering pointed, the true high priest of whom every descendant of Aaron was a figure. These things, or, or something like them, were no doubt the things which the Lord expounded upon on his way to Emmaus. True. And yet I wonder whether that begins to scratch the surface for you and I of the why the true grand scheme of Christ come to enter into his glory. We say that they'd missed the fact that Jesus had come to be a sacrifice, and they clearly had. But I wonder whether the grand scheme that we've then moved on to from their perspective is nearly quite grand enough. This week I've been considering some of um, Paul's summations of who Jesus is and what he was all about. Summations like that included in the book of Colossians or Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 contains this wonderful this kind of um, prayer of praise to God for what he has done. And in the midst of it, in the, in the heart of it, comes this statement clarifying the purpose for which Christ had come and lived and died and risen again. See if you can catch it as I read through it. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will 
to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment. And this is the purpose, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were chosen, having been predestined to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, we who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for his praise and glory, and that you also, might be included in Christ when you hear the message of truth, the gospel of salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise and glory of God. There's so much in there that our minds, our hearts, our imaginations latch onto so freely and so quickly. In him we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness for sins. Strangers on the road, Cleopas and your friend, how did you not see it that this was what Jesus was all about? And yet Jesus and Paul would say, whoa, whoa, slow down, stop. You still haven't got quite a grand enough scheme of it. You see, the purpose as described here the purpose as described in Colossians 1, almost word for word, is this. That through Christ, God was going to bring unity in all things, in heaven and on earth, under him. Sometimes in the past, when I've thought about the Bible study Jesus carried out with these two characters, it would have just been example after example. Guys, didn't you figure out what the Passover lamb was all about? Guys, didn't you understand what the sacrifices in the tabernacle were all about? Guys, didn't you understand what the scapegoat was all about? Guys, didn't you understand the pictures of when David went and lived in caves in the grave before being elevated and lifted up as king? That it was all about coming and suffering and dying to make you right with God? All of it true. And yet Jesus was helping them. Jesus desires for us to have an even grander vision. Not simply the restoration of Israel, which is true. Not simply what we might say, the forgiveness of our sins, which is true. But a grander vision of bringing unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I don't have the time this morning to unpack all of that, but the point is there to be seen and understood that Jesus wanted them, wants us to see more fully, more fully what he is all about. And I love the description that these followers themselves give at the end of it all, didn't our hearts burn within us as he opened up the scriptures to us? Their hearts burn within them, this wonderful picture of worship welling up inside. 
Their hearts burn not when they finally realise at the end of the story who Jesus is, but as they are seeing the truer and fuller and grander extent of who he is and what he's about as Jesus opens up the scriptures. Can I ask you a question? Do you want that in your life? Do you want to know more fully and more truly the why of Jesus's life and death and resurrection? Do you want to know more fully the who of the Jesus who came and lived and died and rose again? Do you want to be affected in your emotions as well as your actions by the truth? Do you want a grand, grand vision or are you satisfied with the sliver of Christ that you have so far? How slow. And how foolish you are to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Jesus desires more for us than simply understanding a morsel of the truth. The truth changes them. Not just there in emotions, but in their actions too. I think we have some evidence of that as they learn that Jesus, still a stranger to them, um, is going to go past Emmaus, that he's not going to stop and spend the night. They reach out and they offer him rest. Now, that could simply be because they've enjoyed his company up until this point. But don't forget, these are dangerous time to be Jesus' followers. In my opinion, because they are afraid of associating with Jesus, that's one of the reasons they're heading out of Jerusalem to Emmaus. And yet, they've had their eyes opened to a, a fuller picture, a fuller understanding of who Jesus is and what he's accomplishing. And so they want to be, I believe, hospitable. Right the way throughout the New Testament, Paul's letters, various other letters, hospitality seems to be a hallmark of someone who has seen and understood the true grand scheme of what Jesus is all about. For example, in Hebrews chapter 13, we're instructed to keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Well, this pair ended up showing hospitality to more than an angel. They ended up entertaining the risen Lord Jesus himself. And having been filled up with this grand vision of who Jesus is and why he has done the things that he has done, they are moved to show love and hospitality to this stranger. So they invite him in, he comes, breaks bread with them. And again, whether miraculously or mechanically, they finally recognize him. Either the, the scales are removed from their eyes or they spot the, the holes in his hands or he lowers his hood and takes off his scarf so that they can see his whole face. They see him. Remember, Jesus has kept himself, not because he didn't want them to know that he was risen from the dead, but because he wanted them to see the fuller picture. He wanted them to see this grander vision, this grander scheme of things. And now to top off this new hope that he has shared with them by opening up the scriptures, 
they have this knowledge that Jesus is alive, the good news that he has come back to life just as he said he would. He leaves. He leaves and so do they. They head off quickly to tell others. But notice actually what it is that they're keen to tell the other disciples when they go to them. It isn't, right? The statement isn't that they arrive with the other disciples and they say, that nonsense that the woman told us before, it's true, you know. The nonsense is true. Glad tidings, he's alive. No, what they share is this. The two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognised by them when he broke the bread. They told what had happened to them on the way. The transformation that had taken place. The, the, the eyes being opened, the, the vision being widened, the scheme being engrandened. They tell the whole story, not just the cherry on the top. Okay, I need to move on. Let's just draw a couple of conclusions from this, a couple of applications for us. A little bit from various different parts of this story. First thing. We would do worse than to make a habit of talking to one another about Jesus. We would do worse than to make a habit of talking to one another about Jesus. In church, we're pretty good at set times and strategic times of bringing up Jesus for a, for a certain portion of time and then moving on. But I think this story opens up the possibility, opens up the benefit of, having Jesus on our lips in all occasions. That's what these two were doing as they traveled. They discussed, even when they, they self-confessed, didn't know it all, didn't understand it all. That's what they did. They spoke about him. They chewed him over. They opened themselves up to the possibility of learning and knowing more and more of him and his why. So the first pretty obvious thing that I would say to us is this, we should be willing and keen to speak more about Jesus with one another. Secondly, I'd say this, this story teaches us that none of us should be willing to settle for the sliver of Jesus that we already have. None of us should be happy to settle for the sliver of Jesus that we already have. I'm not speaking about going off and finding a new pool to swim in, like there is some new truth to be discovered. I'm speaking about moving further from the edge of the pool that we are in, diving deeper into the waters we have already come to bathe in. We shouldn't settle and therefore we should make a priority to deepen deepen our relationship, deep strengthen our faith, uh, broaden our vision, the extent to which we know who Jesus is and what he has done. Some of us would be prone just to leave that to chance, as if accidentally we'll stumble into more truth. I don't think that's the case. I think God desires us for, to be active in our pursuit of him and our pursuit of this grander vision. You know probably that I'm into exercise and one of the things you need to do to get fitter is to exercise your muscles in new ways and to in new intensities. You've got to be deliberate, deliberate about it. You don't just accidentally get fitter. That's fitter. That's how you grow. That's how we grow 
growing our vision, growing our relationship with Jesus is being intentional. There I say it like that's one of the reasons why something like the book of Revelation is so daunting and so confusing to many. Why so many false missteps have been made in its interpretation. Because we haven't got a grand enough vision of Christ or a grand enough vision of what he's up to. And so we try to shape and jam and force him into our little compartments. We had hope that he would be the one to redeem Israel. We need to have bigger visions. Not finding new pools, but desiring to go deeper and further into the one that we have found ourselves. Application number three is this. To trust Jesus to shine a light on the old and the new. Trust Jesus to shine a light on the old and on the new. Again, J.C. Ryle said this. When we lose sight of Christ, we shall find that the whole Bible is dark and full of difficulty. Because so often we read the Bible and it doesn't make sense to us. So often we read the Bible and, and we can't understand how it fits into the categories we already have. Because our categories are not sufficient to contain the Christ that we find in here. Do not neglect the Old Testament. Do not neglect the New Testament. Jesus wants us to be in both. And he uses both to help open our eyes and our minds and our hearts to the full extent of what he's about. Make the habit of conversing with one another about Jesus. Don't settle for the sliver that you have of Jesus, but, but deliberately deepen your knowledge of him. Uh, look for him in the Old Testament and the New. And then lastly, invite Christ to help you to see. I'm not sure these guys would have got there in the end on their own. If they had arrived at Emmaus, found all these parchments, carried on their conversations about Jesus, I'm not sure they still would have get, got it. They needed Christ to come to help them to see. Christ to come and help explain to them. And you know, brothers and sisters, we can call on the helper to instruct us, to lead us into all truth. Jesus promised to send his Holy Spirit. It'll be Pentecost Sunday in a couple of weeks time where we'll be celebrating the sending of the Spirit on the church. You know, we have this one who testifies to our spirits who helps open our eyes to the truth so i encourage you invite jesus by his spirit to help you to see sometimes we play the game of faith as if we can just say look i'm a sensible intelligent person if you pass me my bible and my biro i'll do a pretty sweet job of figuring it out but we'll only get so far jesus needs to join us on this journey the Holy Spirit needs to be at work in us and through us and around us for us to truly see the grand scheme, the grand vision of who Jesus is and what he was up to. Don't be slow. Don't be foolish to believe. But speak of Jesus. Search for Jesus. Invite Jesus to help you to know and to see and to cherish everything that he is about.